Okay, now you cannot talk amongst yourselves. Thank you for being here. Um, I don't know, just out of curiosity, because we're trying to figure out where rooms are going to, how we're going to divide rooms next week. Next week, Carrie Danielson uh, is going to start teaching through Galatians during the Sunday school hour as well. So just by show of hands, uh, how many of you are here actually for BTI and you're going to continue in BTI? Okay, Uh, not to make you feel bad, but how many are just here because there's no other room to be in right now? (laughs) All right. I think that answered our question. So, and you're more than welcome. We we love you and won't shame you too much. So, <clears throat> well, we are going to uh, now begin uh, session three of uh, module one, and we're going to start bibliology. And I wish we could spend a lot more time on this. Uh, it, it's it's a subject worthy of of discussion. Uh, many years ago, in the church I pastored in Texas, I preached on bibliology for twenty five weeks, and it's just. It's rich and it's, it's a delight, but we have more than just that to uh, look at. So today we're going to look at uh, bibliology, inspiration, authority, and inerrancy, and how we're going to get all that in in the next 50 minutes, I'm not sure, but we'll, we'll go fast. So just remember, these slides are, are always going to be online, so if I go too fast, you can come back and look at it, but this will at least give you an overview. So let's get going inspiration authority and inerrancy i want to start first with inspiration we have the preparation of the biblical writers we have how god prepared them and speaking of god preparing them how about we pray first i got so excited about this i completely forgot so let's let's go to the lord lord we uh, can do nothing and we certainly can't understand your word without you we can't understand the truths the deep rich treasures of the Word of God, unless the Spirit of God would so graciously enlighten us and show us the truth. We thank you and praise you for all who know Christ. There was a moment in time when you opened our eyes to the Bible, to Christ as revealed in the Scriptures, and we thank you and praise you for that. May our time studying how we received a Bible from you be profitable and encourage us and increase our confidence in your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the preparation of the biblical writers, this is an important um, topic because the, the human authors weren't somehow strange and different from us. They were just like us. They had all the same characteristics uh, that are common to all people that are created in the image of God. They were relational beings. They had relationships. They had wives. They had children. They had families. They were linguistic beings. They didn't um, they didn't operate in a language that's somehow otherworldly. They simply spoke the language of their day. They had unique perspectives, and these perspectives were prepared by divine providence. It doesn't mean that these perspectives were in contradiction with one another. They were just unique. They were just different. If you read, for example, uh, the Apostle Paul compared to the Apostle John, you, you begin to see personality differences come out. The Apostle Paul is the master of, of um, ideas that are gray and working with them and, and working through them. He is the master of nuance. John doesn't use nuance. He just says, you're either wrong or you're right, and there is a Grand Canyon between the two. And you begin to see those personalities, and God uniquely prepared them. Each author had a unique time, 
had a unique place. He had a unique heredity. His education, interests, his bents were different. Different authors even had unique vocabularies, vocabulary and, and style. They had a unique time of their ministry, their calling, how the Lord used them, how the Lord preserved their ministry. And in some cases, such as the Gospel of Luke, the human author's research and his writing was done under supernatural uh, supervision. The Gospel of Luke is, is a compilation of inspired research that Luke uh, performed. And so the writers were prepared. And you think about the fact that God uh, oversaw sovereignly every aspect of their lives so that there would be a moment when a quill was dipped into ink and set to a scroll and begins to write things through this person that would become the divine word of God. So the, the writers themselves were prepared. But then we get also to what we call the superintendents of the biblical writers. That's a big word, but I think it's, it's useful that, that the, the writers were superintended. They were controlled to a certain degree. 2 Peter 1, 19-21. This is worth reading to you because this is very much our basis for this doctrine. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." So there's our key phrase, carried along by the Holy Spirit. The the primacy of the prophetic word uh, based on Peter's eyewitness account of Christ. Even more sure than everything else he saw. And by the way, the previous verses say that, that he saw the transfiguration of Christ. He saw the transformation of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And yet he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed that his eyewitness account of the transfiguration of Christ was good, but this is great. That's what he's saying. This is the ultimate revelation of God in writing. So the writers are superintended. Now we get more to the documents. Let's talk about the inspiration of the documents. Ryrie in his basic theology gives a really good definition of inspiration. God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. I'm going to read that one more time and then we'll take that apart. God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. Now, a couple of concepts to go through here and some of you are familiar with this and some may not be. But we like to use a term called verbal plenary inspiration. Right there, verbal plenary inspiration. Anybody for work ever had to go to a, a big conference of any kind? You do that? Okay. And they have a plenary session. The plenary session is where everybody is all together uh, rather than the, the sessions that are, that are separate. So the plenary part and the verbal part goes together to say every single word is inspired. 
Every single word, all the words together are inspired. Individual words are inspired. How the words are put together in clauses and then in sentences and in paragraphs are inspired. There's no sense in which you can say, well, the Bible as a whole is inspired, but there are parts of it we're not sure about. Can't say that. Every word. Verbal plenary inspiration. Now, what do we mean by inspiration? When we say inspiration, what what does that mean? It, It means something like, I saw a beautiful sunset and I felt what? inspired right uh, i i saw my wife walk down the aisle and i'll never forget that moment and that inspired me that's an external event making me feel something so the idea here from a human standpoint we would think well does inspiration mean that um the apostle paul was riding along one day and just saw this incredible view as the sun was going down and said, I think I'll write Romans based on that. No, that's not inspiration. Our, our, our English word kind of misleads us a little bit. So let's talk about inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now let's take this apart. First of all, scripture... Uh, it's a Greek word, graphe, and it speaks specifically of the Old Testament as a whole here in this verse, but we also are obviously including the upcoming New Testament. 2 Peter three fifteen and 16, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, why did I read that to you? This reference right there. It's not up there. The reference is 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says all scriptures inspired by God definitely includes the Old Testament, but in 2 Peter 3, Peter includes the writings of Paul as scripture. So we see the formation of the New Testament already um, in play big time at this point. So graphe, the scriptures, it speaks of writings. And so this is very, very important to understand about inspiration. If you get nothing else, get this. The writings, not the writers, are inspired. The writings, not the writers, are inspired. Down the road, when we get to uh, the first and second letters of Paul to uh, the church at Corinth, you'll actually find out that First and Second Corinthians are two of four letters that he wrote to the Corinthians. And you go, oh, what happened to the other books of our Bible? They're not books of the Bible. They're two other letters that he wrote to the Corinthians. We don't have them. Why? Because they're not inspired. They're good. I'm sure they're awesome. But they weren't inspired. There are no books missing from the Bible. Nobody's going to dig up uh, a, a, a 67th book and go, oh, look at this. We would understand completely uh, more things. That's not going to happen. So the writings are inspired, not the writers. Uh, and this is, why, this is very comforting to us because if the writers have to be inspired, all of them were sinners. And when they sin, we would go, well, if they sinned over here, I can't trust what they wrote. You can trust what they wrote because the writings are inspired. So what does, what does inspiration mean? It's breathed out by God. Let's take apart inspiration. 
breathed out, inspired by God, theopneustos. It literally means it's a, it's a, it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It means God breathed. And you can all, almost see here, uh, thea, God, panustas, which is uh, breath or wind. Uh, we use that of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. So we see God breathed, breathed out by God. Now, B.B. Warfield in his uh, theology has uh, a, a good point. He says, The Greek term has nothing to say of inspiring or of inspiration. Listen to this. It speaks only of spiring or spiration. What does that mean? What it says of Scripture is not that it is breathed into by God or is the product of divine inbreathing into the human authors, but it's breathed out by God. It is God-breathed. So, if your, if your translation says it is breathed out by God or God breathed, that is the most accurate. This is very similar to Genesis 2.7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. It's the same thing. God breathed these writings. Job 33.4. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ is so closely associated. He's called, in John 1, the Word of God. He's closely associated with the mind, the very breath of God Himself. So let's look at what the Bible itself says about inspiration. We'll go back to the Old Testament to start with. The biblical theme of inspiration first in the Old Testament. There's several ways we see this happen. We have just simply direct speech from God to His people. Exodus 20, Genesis 12, Exodus 3, other passages, God is simply speaking aloud to his people, and we have the written record of that, of that speaking. Just because you have never heard God speak audibly doesn't mean he hasn't done that um, with others. You don't need to hear him speak audibly because you, he's spoken. He's spoken here, and, and so we don't have that need. We look forward to that, but we don't have that need at this moment. And then you have prophetic speech. This isn't directly from God. This is God speaking words through a human being, spoken to others um, through the prophets. Uh, 1 Kings 20, verse 13, Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And we see this phrase thousands of times in the Bible, Thus says the Lord prophetic speech and then of course you have the written words from god there are several accounts of the writing of words that were then taken to be god's word in written form uh, for example exodus seventeen fourteen. then the lord said to moses write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of joshua that i will utterly blot out from the remembrance blot out the remembrance of amalek from under heaven and then you have the writing prophets of course Jeremiah 30, verse 2, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. So, various ways that God speaks, inspires uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, we look back to the Old, so it's important to understand the New Testament perspective on the Old Testament. Old Testament writings were thought of as God's speech. That was never questioned in the New Testament. The New Testament never says, 
this is some new stuff that is much, much better than the old, and, and you should look dubiously and suspiciously at the old. Never says that. Matthew one twenty two. so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And that's speaking of the birth of Christ. And so it always looks back with respect, deference, and absolute inspiration on the Old Testament. The individual words and the individual letters of the Old Testament are relied upon. Matthew twenty two forty four and 45, the Lord Jesus Christ, from one word in Psalm 110, verse 1, proved that David called the Messiah Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, and he used that to prove the doctrine of the eternality of Christ. One word. Minor details from Old Testament prophecies are seen to be fulfilled in Christ. Uh, Matthew 2.5 cites Micah 5.2 uh, from Bethlehem. Jesus being from Bethlehem. And then all of the Old Testament is said to be worthy of belief. This is why we don't accept the idea when somebody says we're a New Testament church. No, we're a Bible church. We're, we, we understand the Old Testament is said to be worthy of belief. Luke 24.25, Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into glory? And then this, is, this verse of the Bible is, it, it tears at my heart. And I'll tell you why in a minute. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, if there was ever one thing I wanted added to the Bible, I would want to know what was in that sermon. The Lord Jesus Christ starting, let me go back to Genesis 1 and show you myself. Wow, it would have saved us so much study if we just had that. But we have to go back and look. The New Testament perspective on the Old Testament is that it is inspired as is. And by the way, we'll get to this when we're, we're talking about covenant theology and dispensationalism. The New Testament does not redefine what the Old Testament means. The New Testament does not go back and have priority over the Old Testament. The New Testament simply finishes what the Old Testament began. So the New Testament, if the New Testament were a person, put it this way, and the Old Testament were another person who walked in the door, the New Testament would stand up in, in deference and respect. How else do we understand the New Testament? They are words of God. We have the direct speech from God at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration of Christ, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he adds one detail, listen to him. And then you have the conversion of Saul, Acts chapter 9. You have God saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asks, Lord, who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We have Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10 where he receives a direct, direct speech from God. But then the New Testament records God's speech through Christ and through the apostles. And so the New Testament claims to be the words of God and they clearly are the words of God. Now, how do you believe that the Bible is inspired? How do you do that? Well, our human nature is to look for evidence, right? Is to look for external evidence. That's our human nature. Like, I get really excited about biblical archaeology. When something gets dug up that shows that, oh yeah, 
King David actually did exist because, by the way, for centuries, a lot of people didn't believe it because nobody had found proof until somebody dug up a big giant obelisk that says David all over it. All kinds of things like that. And that's very exciting. But does that prove the Bible? I want to caution all of us to to not think in terms of proving the scriptures to be true. Why is that the case? Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Something to the effect of the Bible needs to be proven about like a lion needs to be shown to be ferocious. Try telling the lion, I I need to prove that you're ferocious. Okay, I'll bite your hand off. Will that prove it? No, the Bible is its own best authority. And I'll explain why in a minute. The Bible's claims are the greatest authority of inspiration. Extra biblical evidence is valuable and it's, It's interesting, but it's never said to prove the Bible to be true. It's never said to prove the Bible to be true. The Bible is the ultimate authority about itself. To say I'm going to prove the Bible to be true with external evidence is like a four-year-old saying, Mom and Dad, I've decided that you have authority in my life. No, I have authority in your life because I do. And I'm the ultimate authority. A few times in the Bible, God says something to the effect of, I swear by myself. What does he, why does he say that? Because what could he swear by that's higher? There is nothing higher. So what is the ultimate claim of, of, of inspiration? It's the Bible's own claims. The Bible is the ultimate authority about itself. And what's the ultimate witness to the inspiration of Scripture? It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate witness. Now, someone might say, That's circular reasoning. The Bible can't claim that about itself. In any other context, I would would understand that. If a college professor, for example, says, what I have just said is true because it's me saying it, we would all dismiss that and say that's circular reasoning, that makes no sense. You need to appeal to other, other authorities. But when the Bible says something, there is no other authority. It may appeal to itself. By the way, you remember um, a couple of times in the Gospels, people said of the teaching of Jesus, he's different. He doesn't teach us like the scribes and Pharisees. You want to know what the difference was? The difference between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the scribes is Jesus didn't quote anybody except God. The scribes were constantly quoting other scribes. That's how they taught. Well, Rabbi, this guy says this, and two centuries ago, Rabbi, this guy said that, and if I give you enough of those, that must mean it's right. But they said, Jesus teaches with authority because he simply spoke the word of God. What human being is Jesus going to quote to be authoritative? He only quotes God. So that's inspiration. Let's look at the authority of Scripture. And and before we get to authority, um, if the Bible is inspired, if every word, verbal plenary inspiration, every word is from God, then naturally it follows that it must be authoritative. You cannot say, I believe the Bible is inspired, I just don't believe it's authoritative. That's like saying, mom and dad, I believe what you're saying is right, I just don't want to listen. That's what that says. So now we get to really salvation issues, the, the authority of Scripture. What's the reason that Scripture is authoritative? If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, then all that he says is authoritative. It all carries weight. If what he says is revealed in Scripture, then Scripture is authoritative. Now, someone may say, well, 
I don't believe the Bible, therefore it's not authoritative over me. Whether you believe it or not is irrelevant. The Bible is authoritative. That's the same as saying, I don't believe the sun will come up tomorrow. Great, you can say that all you want. What's happening tomorrow? Here it comes. Now we have what some have called objective and subjective authority. Subjective authority says that Scripture's authority is because it's accepted by the community of faith. There's a, there's a mutual agreement that we all accept that. And we, and we sort of understand that, um, that because the Holy Spirit has worked in so many people, we accept uh, the authority of Scripture. But objective authority is what I just said. The Scripture's authoritative without my acceptance, whether I want it to be or not. When the United Methodist Church um, says that the Bible is comprised of man's view of God, which is anti-inspiration, by the way. That doesn't make any difference. That doesn't change the fact that the Bible is authoritative. doesn't change the fact that it's inspired. The only way to confirm authority is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's how authority is confirmed. The Holy Spirit works through the Scriptures to confirm the objective authority of Scripture, bringing confidence in and accountability to the Bible as the Word of God. I'll never forget sitting in a class with uh, Dr. Bill Barrick, just this phenomenal scholar. And we're, we're getting ready to talk about how you know the Bible is authoritative. And I personally was waiting for some just killer argument that says, we can prove that the Bible is authoritative. And he goes, he's using PowerPoint, goes to the new, next slide, and he says, the only way to confirm authority is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. That is the ultimate way. And that's okay. And that's good. That is right. It brings us confidence to the Bible as the Word of God. Now, what's the biblical basis for the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 14. And I'm not, I'm not going to read all that to you, but just give you a couple of highlights here. The theme of this little section is the Holy Spirit in the giving and, uh, giving and believing of divine revelation. How the Holy Spirit works in the giving and believing of divine revelation. Verse 4 says the Holy Spirit persuades through the word of God. Verse 5 says that our faith rests in the power of God, not in the power of man. Verse 10 says that the Spirit gave the content of Scripture, that all the words are given by the Spirit of God. And verse 14 tells us that without the inner working of the Spirit, one cannot accept or fully understand the Scriptures. And listen, you're, you're a Christian. You have experienced this. You open the Bible and these truths that really, really smart unbelievers cannot grasp become very clear to you. And it's obvious to you. We're going to talk a lot about that, in fact, uh, in our Sunday morning worship later this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. One of the greatest things about being a preacher is that I can at times see the work of the Spirit on the faces of people. It, it looks something like this. Week after week after week. Oh, I preached to a youth group for, for, for months one, one time. And this little girl in the back, she did this continually. You know why she kept doing that? Because that's where the clock was. And she was just waiting. She was, if she was praying, it was, oh God, let this sermon be over soon. And all of a sudden, one Sunday, I start preaching and she's got a notebook and a Bible and she's writing like crazy, writing like crazy. And a few weeks later, I said, 
Emily, what, what happened to you? And she said, I don't know. I think I got saved. <laughs> Suddenly the word of God just exploded in her heart. That is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have some implications for objective authority. The implications of objective authority were to be hearers of the word. If the Bible is authoritative, whether we believe it or not, then we are to hear the word. James 1, we're to be doers of the word. You can't do it unless you hear it. This is why churches that don't teach the Bible are, are harming their people because they can't do the word of God if they're not hearing the word of God. Scripture then is the referee. It is the divine umpire in all matters. It's what we, we go to. There is no other authority. There's no co-authority with Scripture. Well, we need to listen to this source, this source, and the Bible and compare them. No. Only the Bible, only the Bible is authoritative. And by the way, only the biblical gospel is authoritative. We'll spend all morning talking about that later. How do we know what the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, wants us to do in the church? Because it's expressed in his authoritative word. This is, and if you've ever seen the organizational chart of Grace Bible Church, we always have Jesus at the head. And how do we know what he wants us to do? Because he's written to us to tell us. And the local church then is compelled to examine its own functioning in light of Scripture. So there's a lot of implications for objective authority. All right, we're going to do one last thing, and that is the inerrancy of Scripture. I know we're just hitting broad mountain, mountain peaks right now, but hopefully this is helpful to you. And, and my hope is that what this does is just deepens your confidence in the Word of God all the more. So let's look at inerrancy. Inerrancy. There's some broad definitions. First of all, anything that's inerrant means it's without error. Included in this is the idea of it being infallible. And an easy way to understand that is that it is unfailable. It cannot fail. So it's inerrant. It's without error. It's infallible, meaning it cannot fail. One of the most important things that's happened in the last decades, last number of decades, is the, the group of men that produced the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And the version that they wrote in 1978, it's not that they changed their mind on things, it's just that they bolstered uh, their statements a couple of times. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy in 1978, paragraph 11, says, quote, We affirm that Scripture having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters that it addresses. Now, the infallibility of Scripture is extremely important because you have to trust that every word in the, in the Bible won't fail you. It won't deceive you. It won't lead you down the wrong path. And so someone might say, an unbeliever might say, well, I read the Bible and... I felt like it was misleading me. That can't be. The Bible will only illuminate a person. Here's another definition of inerrancy. If this is helpful to you, this is from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Inerrancy. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So that's kind of a negative way of putting it, that the Bible will never say something that is not factual. That is not true. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts, we'll get to that in a minute, does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now, let's, let's play devil's advocate just for a minute. 
well, I can't believe that the Bible is inerrant just because you say it is. I mean, the Bible is full of mistakes, right? And what's your answer? You always say, well, show me one. And they can't. Or they might say, well, the, the Bible, you know, it's not really a scientific book and it, it, it uses phrases that are outdated and things like that. Those arguments are so shallow and they don't hold any water. We'll get to some of those in the coming weeks. But what is the basis for inerrancy? Well, obviously, we go back to the authority of Scripture as the highest authority. So we look at a biblical basis for inerrancy. The biblical basis. First of all, the Bible's teaching on inspiration, 2 Timothy 3.16, inspiration is critical for inerrancy. Let me put it to you this way. If God has breathed every word of the Bible and it has mistakes in it, then God has made mistakes. And if God has made mistakes, we can't serve him. Does that make sense? Inspiration necessarily means you must have inerrancy. This is why it's a, it's a mystery to me why professing Christians believe that Genesis 1 and 2 is somehow mythology and suddenly in Genesis 3 you, you hit the ground running with the real word of God. You know what that says? That says that God wasn't smart enough, he wasn't intelligent enough to tell us how he created all things. That he left some details out that we really need to know and thankfully Charles Darwin solved all of that for us in the mid-1800s. No, if the Bible is inspired, it must be inerrant. The Bible teaches concerning its own authority. That's another basis for inerrancy, its own authority. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What is, he, he's talking two different languages here. What is an iota? It's a, it's a little tiny letter in Greek. It's boop. It, that, that's the sound it makes, I guess. It's boop. And what's a dot in Hebrew? It's a little dot. Bing. That's the sound the dot makes. Not a, not a will disappear. And I'm not just trying to be silly. Every word, every nuance, every detail is authoritative. It is exactly as God would have it to be. Then you have the biblical basis of Scripture's use of Scripture itself. Um, there's whole arguments resting on one word. I, I already mentioned to you the word Lord. In Matthew 22, he said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What did he just prove? The eternality of the Son of God. That David said to the Lord, to Jesus Christ. You have the tense of a verb. I am to demonstrate the entire truth of the resurrection. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 32, and I'm quoting from the New American Standard. I like this a little better. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What's the tense difference? It doesn't say I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, because that's what it would be if they're never going to exist again. The God is now, currently, the God of Abraham. What is that? That's the resurrection. If the text isn't inerrant, if the text has mistakes, 
it'd be very difficult to see the point in those arguments. It'd be difficult to see the point in me as a pastor and other pastors who are trying to be faithful to the word, taking apart the very grammar, the very sentence structure of every sentence to make certain that we understand every detail. Because someone could just say, well, the text of the Old Testament is questionable at that point and it could be wrong. This is the old argument that says that the Bible is not the word of God, but it contains the word of God. In other words, well, some parts of it are inspired. Some parts of it are inerrant. Some parts of it uh, are without error. Well, who gets to decide which ones? God is 100% inerrant in his writing. How about this? If the Bible has mistakes, then we don't truly know the character of God because it's only in the Bible that we know the character of God. In fact, we could just briefly talk about... um, uh, sorry, let me go back one. We could talk about the, the character of God. Uh, Titus 1, 2. He cannot lie. If he can't lie, then how could there be mistakes in the Bible? <clears throat> you ever have little kids uh, lie through their teeth? And little kids are really bad at it, which is good because you can catch them easily. But then they say, oh, I made a mistake. No, you're a liar. You didn't make a mistake. You said something that wasn't true. If God makes a mistake, then he's a liar. God is truth. John 14, 6. If God is truth, then how can he say something that's in error, that is not truth? God's word, John 17, 17. Jesus himself says, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. And then you have, of course, the the key phrase in Scripture, thousands of times, thus says the Lord. What does that say? It says, hang on every word that's about to be spoken. Thus says the Lord. It brings an atmosphere that assumes inerrancy. And again, someone would say, well, there's lots of mistakes in the Bible. Just find me one. Find me one. That, that's a great challenge you can issue to somebody because they'll never be able to find it. And, and what they'll often go to, and we'll talk about this when we get to the Gospels, they'll say, well, um, the Gospels uh, tell different versions of the same story. That doesn't make them untrue. It just means they told different viewpoints of the same story. And praise the Lord, we have many men over the centuries who have put together what, you, what we call harmonies of the Gospels that show that the Gospels are like these grand gears that work exactly together, exactly and precisely. There is not a single, not one, demonstrable contradiction from one Gospel to another. Not one. Why? Because they're inspired. And they're inerrant. There's no demonstrated errors in Scripture. I want to just finish up with a few other issues related to inerrancy. And then we'll be, we'll be done here. A couple of other issues here. <clears throat> inerrancy, it applies to all parts of Scripture as originally written. As originally written. That's why we talked about the original manuscripts, the original documents. And we'll get to those in another session. But just sort of a side note here. um, Why do we not have the original documents? We don't know for certain. But what do you think would happen if we had the original Romans? It would be under glass somewhere and people all over the world would be bowing down to worship it. Because that's what we always do with what the Catholic Church calls relics. Why do we not have little pieces of the cross? Well, the Catholic Church has said they have. If you took all the pieces of the cross, you could build Noah's Ark with it. Why do we not have the original manuscripts? We're not told for certain, but we don't need them because we have incredibly accurate copies. 
And we'll talk about that when we get to transmission. But what do we hold to? Is this copy exactly identical to the original manuscripts? It is as close as is humanly and, divine, and with divine help possible. So we hold to what we call derived inspiration. Derived inspiration says that this copy, this translation is inspired and inerrant to the degree that it reproduces the, the original. Every once in a while, you'll see a little footnote in your Bible and we'll go through all these, these details and these uh, statistics. But every once in a while, you'll see a little footnote. And you read the footnote, and it says, there is some dispute as to whether this is the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ our Lord. Or, or uh, either this means camel or rope. And we're not certain which. But just to tell you this now, for your own comfort, there is not one single disputed place in Scripture upon which any major doctrine of any kind hangs at all. It's, it's little grammatical things on occasion, there are two major places in the Gospels that are fairly disputed, but we have really, really good answers about those. The very end of the Gospel of Mark and the beginning of John chapter 8. And we'll get to those uh, when it's appropriate. But we hold the derived inspiration. Can you, using this copy that is put out, let's see, probably by Crossway, using this translation, can you know the person of Jesus Christ can you know the sin of your own heart and know that you need to repent and come to faith in Christ and go to the heaven that is described in this book? Yes, absolutely. Why? Because we hold to inspiration, derived inspiration. Another issue here. Inerrancy doesn't mean that everyday speech can't be used. It doesn't mean that you can't use every, everyday things. Um, round numbers. We see those all the time in Scripture. Isaiah 37, 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And the skeptic would say, there's only a 1 in 1,000 chance that it's actually 185,000. Oh, what if it was 185,002? Does that make it wrong? All right. Don't look back. Everybody look at your watch. If you're wearing a watch, look at your watch. What time is it? Yell it out. 10-12, 10-15, right? Say it again. Quarter after 10. Okay, do we all know what time it is? Yes. It's almost time to be done, right? We all know what time it is. Each of your translations of time might be slightly different, but they're all accurate to the degree that you know the truth. If one of you yelled out, it's 8-10. Well, your translation is wrong. You know that. That would be the Jehovah's Witnesses translation. <laughs> Inerrancy doesn't mean that you can't use everyday things. Technical language. The, the skeptic has said, and this is an actual example. Well, the Bible says that the sun rose. And we know now from science that the sun doesn't rise. The earth spins. And then it seems that the sun came up. So see, the Bible is wrong. Do you honestly think that every poetic passage in Scripture, instead of saying that our God is like the rising of the sun, should say that our God is like when the earth spins and it gives the appearance of the rising of the sun? Of course not. That's ridiculous. We all understand that. Did the ancient mind understand the, the revolutions of the earth? Uh, probably not. 
Does that mean that, that the phrase the sun rose is inaccurate? No. In fact, it uh, said exactly what those people would understand. We just have a little more science, not to contradict, just to have a, a greater appreciation. Um, what, is, uh, what, what is the smallest seed on planet Earth? The smallest seed on planet Earth by some uh, herbologists would say is the seed of the orchid. That's the tiniest seed. What did Jesus say is the smallest seed? The mustard seed. Why? Because in Palestine at that time, nobody grew orchids. The mustard seed was the small. Aha! Jesus was wrong. No, he was using uh, language that they would understand. So inerrancy doesn't mean that everyday speech can't be employed. And I'm glad God uses everyday speech because that way I can understand it. And that makes sense. Another issue here. Free quotations do not imply error. The New Testament cites the Old Testament. Sometimes it uses exact quotes and sometimes it uses loose paraphrase. Now, there's a couple of issues with this. First of all, if I say Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for good, is that an exact quote? No. Am I right? Yes. Because I've given you the truth of that passage. But here's another issue. You'll sometimes see in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, you'll see what is clearly a quotation from the Old Testament. And then you look back in the Old Testament at that exact place and it's slightly different. And you go, wait a minute, are are they wrong? No, in the New Testament, very often they're quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is not the translation that we've used to translate our Old Testament. And therefore, it's slightly different. Exactly the same in meaning, exactly the same in content, just slight variations. So, Um, free quotations don't imply error. Listen, people who don't believe the Bible make up their own rules. They say, I don't believe the Bible because of this rule I just made up. See, the Bible breaks this rule I made up, therefore the Bible is not true. That makes no sense. That's like a child going to his parent and saying, I have decided that the rule is, is that I can eat all the cookies I want. The fact that you have spanked me, you have broken my rule. That that's That's senseless. That's senseless. Um, Bill, uh, who's that guy, that, that commentator? Bill Maher, is that his name? How do you say his name? He loves to talk about Genesis 1 and 2. I've heard him talk about Genesis 1 and 2 multiple times. And he, and he likes to say, well, right there you know the Bible is wrong because Genesis 1 and 2, you have two different accounts of creation. Apparently they couldn't get it right the first time, so they had to put in two of them. A first-year Bible student can tell you that Genesis 1 is God's view of creation from his viewpoint in Genesis 2, is the viewpoint of creation from the crib, from man. It's the same account. Put them together. You have two different, two different camera angles of the same event. A 10-year-old can figure that out. But the Bible may... It, we don't make rules for the Bible. It can cite the Old Testament and so forth. And one last little issue here. Inerrancy doesn't guarantee an exhaustive account of any single instance, of any single uh, uh, circumstance. Just because something is omitted doesn't mean it's an error. Like there's a debate, and I use the word debate with a, with a lowercase d, a very friendly debate, just a discussion about whether Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 is the full word-for-word sermon. Why, why would there be a debate? Because if you read it out loud, it's about three minutes long. Did Peter... On the first day of the church of Jesus Christ, preach for three minutes? I mean, obviously it was effective, 3,000 converts. 
Did he preach every single word that is there? Absolutely. Are those all the words he preached? Probably not. Which ones do we get? The ones God wanted us to have. Wouldn't that be great? You're going, I wonder if we could get the three-minute version of Steve's sermons. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I, I, I'm d- disappointed how loudly you laughed at that. <laughs> Just because something omitted doesn't mean it's an error. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, you get a long uh, narrative version of something and then somebody's going to go over here and tell somebody else about it and they'll it'll say something like and so and so said such and such now did this person actually say the word such and such no it's it's a compilation it's a summary and we understand that so we don't get to make the rules on inerrancy the bible makes its own rules and we go along with those there we go that is just our beginning we'll do a couple more sessions on bibliology and get to things like transmission. How do you know that this is accurate? And I think, I think that's the next one or the one after. So let's pray and then we'll be done this morning. Thank you, Father, for the word of God. And I, I know as many times as I've gotten to give this little talk, I never uh, cease to be amazed at the fact that your scripture is inspired. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. It is God-breathed. It is filled with all authority. And it is utterly without error, without mistake. How much confidence this gives us when we think on such important verses, such as the Lord Jesus Christ promising that if I go away, I will come back again and take you to where I am. Such verses as, where is the sting of death that we have victory in Christ? Such verses as Romans 8.28, that we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. We thank You and praise You for a word that is reliable. For our very souls hang in the balance on whether Your Bible is true or not. And we will trust You literally with our dying breath. We will trust You with our final heartbeat. We will trust You as the darkness overtakes us in death that we will open our eyes immediately to the light of Christ because the Bible says so. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.